I was scared once too. I know what it's like to be different, to be alone in this world. You see, humans are a unique type of pest, multiplying and poisoning our world, all while enforcing a structure of their own, a deeply unnatural structure. Where others saw order, I saw a straitjacket. A cruel, oppressive world dictated by made-up rules. Seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years, decades, each life. A faded, lesser copy of the one before. Wake up, eat, work, sleep, reproduce and die. Everyone is just waiting, waiting for it all to be over, all while performing in a silly, terrible play day after day. I could not do that. I could not close off my mind and join in the madness. I could not pretend. Odin's Dingleberries. What a true Gnosis speech addressed to Eleven in Stranger Things. Ironically, from Vecna, an obvious cipher for the Demiurge. Love what you're saying, Vec. Hate how you go about it. But nothing's worse than an Archon with Gnosis. Vecna reminds me of some interpretations of the Gospel of Judas where Judas himself is brimming with Gnosis, yet will become the new Demiurge when Sackless finishes his cosmic shift at the end of time. It's pretty scary, but maybe both Stranger Things and the Gospel of Judas are warning us that everything casts a shadow, and everything can be weaponized in the Black Iron Prison. And when it comes to Gnosticism, the results are pretty grim. In fact, this is the theme of our episode in this eternal now. So hide your daughters of complacency and cover your testicles of the known. We're gonna need a bigger revelation boat. Cain. You must know, of course, of the Cainites. Gnostic sect, 2nd century. They rejected the books of the New Testament in favor of the Gospel of Judas. They believed that we created the heaven and the earth, and that you were the persecuted party in that unfortunate affair with your brother. They also held that the way to salvation was to give way to lust and temptation in all things. As the saying goes, I got 99 problems and being trapped in a decaying body in a money-hungry society on a dying planet in a mysterious dimension might be one. And another problem might be weaponized Gnosticism and its shadow side. 
Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. For where hope dies, imagination must live. It's said that the worst thing to come out of Pandora's box were not the sorrows or the plagues. It was hope itself. Hope's a gamble. Hope lacks certainty. Welcome to Aeon Bite, as always and forever. This may not be the best time to be alive, but it's the best time to be awake. Eternity hasn't gone anywhere, regardless of what the last few years have shown us. It's still there for your taking. You are amazing and you are so beautiful. And you are so fearless about any new disclosure or celestial download because you've been through so much and see the whole of the moon to faithfully pursue the policy of truth. As the Sufi Rabia once said, I carry a torch in one hand and a bucket of water in the other. With these things I am going to set fire to heaven and put out the flames of hell so that voyagers to God can rip the veils and see the real goal. We're raging against heaven and storming the gates of hell for our misplaced childhoods and paradises lost. I am still Miguel Connor, your host and pompadus of Gnosis. So happy you're on this dark odyssey with me. I know that you're afraid. You're afraid of us. You're afraid of change. I'm going to show them a world without you. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Our astral guest is Christopher Berknees, who materializes at the Virtual Alexandria to discuss his book, Beware the World to Come. The book is well-researched, a fascinating historical and mythological journey across time. Alarming to an extent, and not very kind to the Gnostics and Kabbalists. That's an understatement, and you'll see our differences in the interview. Right, Rick, this is Gnosticism. We're doing something much darker. Nothing wrong with healthy dialogue at the virtual Alexandria. I've hosted many guests, from Jay Dyer to Calvinist minister Peter Jones, who are diametrically opposed to any Gnostic thought. And I am grateful for their time and keen ideas. The same with the erudite Christopher, or any true seeker warrior wishing to be heard and speak in a civilized manner. As Stefan Heller once said, one of the cancers of our 21st century internet-driven society is a lack of civility. Everybody just yells and screams at each other. Nobody's civil anymore. Nobody thinks what it's like to be the other guy. But hey, I can't help it. As a Gen Xer, I'll always be a content of their character and can't we just all get along kind of dude. I believe in free expression and free exchange of ideas. Alas, it looks like I'm a dying breed in this era of Karens and Katamites of the establishment, of online cultural revolutions and remote ass clenchers, of mushrooming programming exploiting that safety in numbers fallacy. 
of the mind killer that is fear instead of the life-giving love for the mysterious. Like the classical Gnostics and Hermeticists, I am as niche and explorative as they come. Like you, I'm trying to kindle a light of meaning in the darkness of mere being. Welcome to the machine, my son, and the means to escape it. But few want to escape Plato's cave. The sheeple aren't going anywhere. They like my world. They don't want freedom or empowerment. They want to be controlled. They crave the comfort of certainty. I am passionately interested in all cultures. I deeply appreciate all religions and mythologies, for they are all masked to the underlying desire of humanity to contact the numinous. All humans house a divine spark, although some do exchange it for a lead role in a cage. Regardless, everyone should be treated with dignity and compassion and understanding. I saw what he saw. I felt what he felt. I thought what he thought. And over time, what was once a prison became a person. It's hard to hate someone you understand. I love the boy, Charles. I take the vibe of Chris Hayes' book, Twilight of the Elites. What we have is not a Jewish, Gnostic, Christian, Muslim, atheist, or whatever problem. The issue is those at the top who often become intoxicated with power and the promise of immortality. Those two great narcotics of Vecna. And then turn their backs on their heritage and begin demiurging the night away. Nipples for men! In 1984, O'Brien tells Winston that power is not the means, but the end. That's what happens to the so-called elite. They become blinded butt-slaves of the heavenly archonic systems, like Yaldi Baldi thinking there is no God but himself. As C.G. Jung said, the opposite of good is not evil, but power. My dad said the two-party system works. Well, Ernie, that's because your dad is a whore for the establishment. I've said this before, and it won't matter to the digital Puritans out there. These meat sacks might not even hear that Christopher and I actually agree on a lot when it comes to communication and the demon-possessed oligarchs. All they want is to embrace the mind-parasite of belonging, the divide-and-conquer Cersei spell, and those circular firing squad mirages. This is now the United States of Zombieland. It's amazing how quickly things can go from bad to total shitstorm. We won't fall for that, you shining crazy diamonds. Your self-knowledge and inner journey are the solution to those 99 problems, including the shadows cast by all that is good and liberating. I mean, Chris Hayes himself became part of the Empire in the end. Yet as James True wrote, This is not a battle of good versus evil. This is a battle of you against the lack of you. The psychotic drowns where the mystic swims. You're drowning 
So piss off Vecna or Sacklas or Samael or Q from Star Trek The New Generation. We are free, we are awake, and we see the creator God behind the curtain. As Leibniz wrote, only an evil or unwise God would be able to create a world worse than the best possible. And as Graham Greene wrote, free will was the excuse for everything. It was God's alibi. They had never read Freud. Evil was made by man or Satan. It was simple that way. But I could never believe in Satan. It was much easier to believe that God was evil. You know what you think about it? Same God made you and me also made a rattlesnake. That just don't make no sense. Led us to an electric interview with Christopher. And let's see how Vecna and Eleven interact some more in Stranger Things. Write your own gospel. Live your own myth. No, I saved you. You are a prisoner here, just like me. To your papa, you are nothing more than an animal, a monster, a lab rat to be tamed. But the truth, Eleven, the truth is just the opposite. You are better than they are. Superior. That is why you frighten him. If you come with me for the first time in your life, you will be free. Imagine what we could do together. We could reshape the world, remake it however we see fit. Join me. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by Christopher Bjorkness to discuss his book, Beware the World to Come. How are you doing, Christopher? Very good, Miguel. Thank you for having me on. Pleasure is all ours. And with us, too, we got the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Uh, I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm bewaring of the world I'm in already, so I don't know what's going to go with the world to come. <laughs> yeah, can't get any well, worse. That's because we're in the Hevlei Mashiach, the birth pangs of the Messiah. There you go. Uh, the boy, birth. Boy. I think Paul called it the birth pangs of the universe. Well, yeah, here we are again. I don't know how it can get worse, but we definitely want to work it to get better. So, Christopher, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became involved in these esoteric topics. Well, I noted when I was a young child that there were many elements of Greek uh, philosophy and Greek wise sayings to be found in the New Testament. And I was particularly struck by the uh, correspondence between Aesop's fable of the wolf in sheep's clothing and the biblical passage related to uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. And I had a set of the great books in my household, and I had read um, 
Plato and Plotinus. So I knew a bit about uh, Platonic philosophy and Neoplatonic philosophy. And then when I started to investigate Kabbalah, it occurred to me that Kabbalah is essentially based on Gnosticism and Neoplatonism. And I started to develop all the correspondences between those things. And I came across the Orphic Greek mystery schools. And in particular, uh, their most cherished God, who became the Demiurge, which is Phanes Protogenes, that is Greek for light bringer first begotten. And in the Gospel of John, it refers to Jesus as the light bringer first begotten. And from, from my early teens, I understood that Christianity was based upon Philo Judaeus of Alexandria's uh, Hellenization of Judaism, especially Platonic Hellenization of Judaism, and with the concept of the Logos becoming Jesus Christ. And I incorporated all those elements and tried to find the commonalities and the discrepancies uh, where they were the same, where they deviated, and why they were brought together, and why they were made to uh, deviate on certain issues. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, your book is definitely uh, extremely well-researched and thorough and so forth, obviously, as we've said in emails. Uh, some of your conclusions I disagree with, uh, obviously, because of the theme of this show, because basically you seem to see uh, Kabbalah, Judaism, Gnosticism, and Christianity as ultimately negative movements. Yes, absolutely. And uh, negative movements, which have been utilized to pit people against one another, in ways in which they all achieve the, the same ultimate results. And the objective is to obtain what is referred to as the world to come, which in Hebrew is the olam haba, as opposed to the present world, which is the olam hazeh. The six days of creation, which are given as the cosmology of the universe, in the book of Genesis represent a 6,000 year period from the creation of Adam through the three ages of the Zodiac, Taurus, Aries, and Pisces. And the fundamental core belief is that creation itself is flawed because it was made by a flawed demiurge uh, who to the Gnostics is known as Yaltabaoth and uh, to Judeus and Christians is known as Yahweh. And they uh, feel that since this creation is flawed, that the ultimate act of creation is a nihilistic destructive act, which destroys the present world, Olam Haze, in order to make way, make room for uh, Olam Haba, the world to come. But their conception of the world to come is that it will be the completion of this cycle by restoring it to its initial state. And in its initial state, Adam was an androgyne who was created in the image of androgynous gods. And as a Gnostic, you're very familiar with the conception of right. um, 
the aeons and the androgynous gods, including Barbello, who uh, mothered Yahweh, Yautabaoth. And so I view uh, this quest to obtain the world to come as an ultimately destructive quest, which will produce uh, something which is very unnatural and which would be abhorrent to most people. And they are unaware of what it is that is being sought through these common beliefs. The world to come of the Christians is a heavenly kingdom, which is contingent upon the destruction of the earth so that all those who are judged and deemed worthy can enter a heavenly kingdom. And I see that as the worship of death and the uh, destruction of the human form and human life. The Judaic conception of the world to come is very different. And it relates to altering the structure of the present world, the earth that we live on, to reunite uh, what the Greeks conceived of as the earthly mother, Gaia, with the heavenly father, Uranus. And I think the Greeks provide perhaps the best example of what is being sought out by this uh, religious mission to destroy the present world and to uh, initiate the world to come. The Greeks believed that cosmologically, there was initially primordial chaos, and within that primordial chaos, there was the goddess Gaia, who was the earth. And this goddess Gaia produced a sun, which became the heavens, which is Uranus. Uranus was pressed very closely against Gaia and was essentially her male aspect. So the two of them coupled together formed an androgyne. And the Judaists believe that an androgyne is a balanced, complete unit. It is the heavenly seminal light mixing with the chaotic motherly womb to produce creation, just as a child is born of the male and the female, where the seed of the male, which is light, enters the dark womb of chaos and the mother nurtures it. And then through the logos, the DNA of that seed, order is created out of matter within that womb of chaos to produce a child. And in that sense, the child is an androgynous being because it receives the male seed within the chaotic womb of the female. So it has both attributes. And one of the common themes of all these belief systems is that you have the male parent, the female parent, and the androgynous son. So initially, Gaia and Uranus were pressed very tightly against one another, and they uh, produced many offspring. But these offspring were trapped in the underworld of Tartarus. And Gaia uh, plotted to get Uranus off of her body so that there would then be a space between the heavens and the earth in which her children could emerge from Tartarus and uh, live in the open, vacuous space between heaven and earth. And this belief became mirrored in Kabbalah with the idea that the Ein Sof contracted itself in the Tsimtsum to create a vacuous space into which the light could be emitted and therefore created beings would have room in which to exist 
without destroying the perfect unity of the ein, the ein sof, and the ur ein sof. And all of this matches uh, this Greek conception that the male had to be separated from the female, that the androgyne had to be broken apart and separated in order for creation to have a place for its children. And we see that in the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had to be separated in order for there to be male and female who could produce children. But a curse came with that, and that curse was mortality and labor. They were expelled from the Garden of Eden so that they had to utilize their intellect to produce agricultural and uh, civilized goods with which to survive. And they were cursed to die, and dying became part of the process of having children to carry on the human race. So they view this separation of the male and female as a form of catastrophe. And in Kabbalah, the catastrophe was that um, after this initial vessel was created by the Ein Sof contracting itself, the Orein Sof emitted a brilliant ray of light into that vessel. And then other vessels were created and the light was emanated into those vessels. There were initially 10 vessels, but they were very immature and weak. And the light was initially intensely bright. And the seven lower of those vessels shattered. And the shards of these vessels uh, descended from the highest world of Tohu, which is chaos, down into the lower worlds, ultimately into the world of Asiya, which is our present world. So our present world is cluttered with the uh, shells of these shattered vessels that are chaotic, evil, and dark. But the light also uh, exploded when these vessels shattered and became embedded as sparks within some of these shards. And there was a special set of vessels that were created for the divine light. And when those vessels shattered, they produced what are known as the Kelipa Noga, which means shining shells. And those shining shells have within them the divine sparks. The other shells have no divine sparks and depend upon the peripheral light that was emitted when the vessel shattered for their energy to survive. And there is a dualistic war between these two types of shells, the Kelipa Noga and the Kelipat. And they essentially exist in two different universes. And those universes are defined as the Sitra Yemina, which is the right-hand side of the Tetragrammaton, and the Sitra Akra, which is the left-hand side. And it is known as the other side. That's the literal translation of Sitra Akra. And the Israelites exist within the Sitra Yemina, which is the right-hand side, which is good and predominantly male. And the um, non-Israelites exist in kind of a counter universe of the Sitra Akra. And the ambition is to eliminate the Kelipat so that this space that was created by the contraction of the Ein Sof becomes entirely divine. And the uh, sparks are free to be 
released and returned to their source, which in the Platonic system and the Gnostic system is referred to as the one or the monad. And just as the light was emanated in the form of descent down uh, the ten sephirot, ultimately to Melkut, which is Gaia, the earthly mother, who is known in Kabbalah as Shekinah, the earth has to be elevated back up to the source which uh, first emanated this light. And the individual soul has to be restored to this original source of divine light and become part of the unity of the one. And that is the religious ambition of Gnostics, Christians, and Kabbalists. Well said. That's a great summary. Uh, Obviously, I'm more of the school that everything casts a shadow, everything can be weaponized. Uh, We always have to worry about the elite at the top of these religions, because uh, I do agree with you that there is a sort of nihilism with these people at the top, and it could be any religion, really. Uh, And I agree that a lot of what's going on today is the sort of weaponization of these classical ideas for destruction. I don't know if you're familiar with Tracy Twyman and Alex Rivera's uh, Baphomet book, but she her research overlaps with a lot of yours. And even I knew that, for example, in classical times, the Canites, the Gnostic Canites, believe that the universe was a womb and they were trying to create this ritual that would bring everything crashing down and obviously the destruction of the world happens with the myth of um, Lilith and Samuel that if they are allowed to get together uh, it will cause the destruction of the world so in different movements you have this sort of transgressive left-hand path idea And this has definitely been used by the establishment of many religions throughout time. But what I wanted to ask you is, why do you see the original idea of the androgyny or the androgynous person as negative? Because again, you mentioned it appears in traditions we and it appears beyond even before the greeks you had the the garuman or gaiman of the persians you had the purusha of the hindus and all these movements from the dawn of time you've got this hermaphrodite androgynous whatever you want to call it being that is separated do you think these religions all got it wrong or what happened well because the natural order is for uh, males and females to procreate by mixing up their genetics. And I think there's a very beneficial aspect to the idea of genetics being mixed and not simply being cloned. And I think uh, the quest, at least at present, is to convert male skin, skin cells into egg cells so that males can procreate uh, with one another through their seed and through the conversion of their skin cells or other cells or stem cells into uh, egg cells. And I see that as altering the human form into a non-human form based on uh, ancient religious mythologies. And I agree with you entirely. This much predates uh, Judaism and Judaism is derived from 
I think predominantly Greek, but there are certainly earlier manifestations, as you pointed out, and other manifestations, as you pointed out. Uh, why do I see it as negative? Because I think that whenever you start messing around with nature, it has disastrous consequences. And because I, um, I very much admire the present human form, and I think that to alter that present human form would be to create something that is non-human. And the whole idea is that this stems from the idea that human beings were crafted by androgynous gods. And I think that that is a mythological belief and not a sound premise for uh, deliberately altering the genetics of human beings in order to manufacture post-gender and post-human immortal androgynes. Um, I also think there's an element of spiritual alchemy involved in this in which they believe that there is a dualism between the soul and the body and that the soul is not a product of the body but is instead a divine light which is trapped within the corpse of flesh and that this uh, divine spark has to be liberated from the body I think is essentially was instigated as a trap to uh, trick the original Gnostics into giving up on procreation and viewing childbirth as a uh, natural means of sustaining uh, the ethnic group, the people, and the community. And I think it was a subversive trick. But I also think that it was based upon an oral tradition within Judaism, which came from the Greek mystery schools uh, that originally believed that Dionysus uh, contained within him a divine light and that the Titans tore apart Dionysus, consumed him, and then human beings were made from the ashes of the Titans when they were destroyed, and thereby human beings took their bodily form, the vessel, uh, from the material of the Titans, but they also had a soul, which is a divine spark, which became the breath that was breathed into the clay of matter to become the noima and the soul of the being. And I think that that um, distinction is artificial, depends upon a primitive understanding of the nature of the human being, and has been contradicted by our studies into neurology and uh, DNA and the fact that the mind and consciousness are an integral function of the physical form of the human being and that the vessel and the soul are one and products of one another. So I think, I think it's factually correct, incorrect, and I think it produces a desire for extinction. And I think that was deliberately done by the Gnostics against the Romans, and I would assert as evidence of that the um, Gospel of Judas, where it states that uh, Jesus deliberately deceived the disciples so that they could deliberately deceive the Christians. And the, um, the Apocalypse of Abraham, which is even older and which is contemporary with the Gospels, which states that upon Jesus's return, he will exterminate all of the Christians and apostate Jews who have adopted Christianity and then um, assert a chosen race. And I think this is dangerous, uh, not only for non-Israelites, but for Jews as well, 
because the belief asserts that there are only 600,000 Jewish souls which were present in Adam. And by Adam, I mean Adam Ahelion. Gentiles come from a different Adam, Adam Beliar, which is Satan. Um, and this is dangerous for Jews because uh, this belief comes from the, the Torah uh, mythology that 600,000 Jewish males left with Moses from Egypt heading toward uh, Canaan. So I think the goal of those who are pursuing these beliefs is to create 600,000 androgynous um, immortal beings from the DNA of Kabbalistic Jewish men. And that excludes a lot of Jews as well as others. So I think it's a danger to all of humanity. I think it's unnatural. And I think uh, the aspiration is um, being put into play and we are suffering from the effects of those who want to pursue this agenda to establish a world to come and destroy the present world. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. No, I would agree with you on that. I think there is a, an obvious eugenics or Malthusian. I don't know. I hope I'm saying the term right. Uh, I do think, yeah, there is a movement that has deep-seated hatred towards women, uh, towards families, and so forth. And I think we are right there. This stuff has been weaponized against us. I would say that the non uh, non-reproducing idea of the Gnostics might have been overplayed. You really don't find that in the secret book of John. Uh, you don't find it in other places. The Gnostics were very varied, were varied into uh, what they believe in through times. I mean, encretism was really big in the third century, and a lot of the Gnostics went with that, just as a lot of Jews went encratic in the first century, and Christians became encratic in the second century. So, um, but yeah, in that way, I would say that there is, uh, the archons are preparing something really bad for us, and I think you're right. Now, 
obviously I would say, Christopher, that uh, to me, the idea of androgyny is more of a, an inner sort of quest for those looking for those inner paths of uh, the mystery religions where to get Jungian, you have an animus and an animus, and these are balancing forces, and we are to unite them and transcend them. I see that from a inner spiritual journey, and I think a lot of the Gnostics and Kabbalists and Christians probably saw it that way. And it's a wonderful path for individuation, I would say. But again, that's me. Vance, do you have a question or what do you think? Yeah, I think there's something more fundamental at work here. Christopher, do you currently believe in any kind of spiritual reality or are you pretty much just a materialist? In other words, is everything that seems to me material, you know, including energy and so forth, a messed universe, so to speak. Is that the limitation of your conception of the universe? Absolutely not. Um, I would hesitate to define spirituality in the ways that uh, contemporary and ancient religions define it. But I think that the, um, the structure of mind and the structure of matter is very poorly understood and matter as a concept is a concept created by the mind. And that um, in reflecting upon physical reality, we also create the mythology of matter and mm-hmm. the uh, mythology of the material world. There, there is something that is beyond our ken that uh, does exist and our consciousness is a part of that structure. So you can define that as spiritual if you want to, but in order to um, to put my beliefs into words, I would need better definitions of those terms to say whether I approve of them or not. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a Marxist materialist. I'm not a Hegelian dialectic materialist, <laughs> and I am also um, not religious in the sense of the Abrahamic faiths right, right. or the mythologies of the ancients. Okay. Um, do you have your own personal mythology that you've worked out? Um, you know, uh, uh, how about a very basic question? Well, I think that's a very good question. Uh, Jeremy Bellamy and um, Hans Feihinger created a theory of useful fictions. And they said that science and metaphysics are essentially useful fictions, uh, mythologies which we uh, choose to adopt if they are successful in perpetuating our survival. And that is the kind of mythology I, I aspire to. Yeah, how about with respect to consciousness? In other words, um, I know you said that consciousness and the body are kind of intertwined, but that kind of reminded me of the people that say, well, you know, the um, consciousness is just an uh, epiphenomenon of the brain. So everything's the brain. I don't think it, you, that's what you're saying, but you tell me. Well, how are we going to define the brain? That There has to be some um, continuity because what we perceive of as consciousness has a great deal of continuity to it. And we are slowly starting to isolate those areas within the brain where it seems that that continuity manifests itself as consciousness. But again, all of our images of that are themselves products of our consciousness. So, so it's kind of a, uh, a loop of self-deception as to what the material world is as opposed to the conscious world that uh, I think we are still very far from resolving. 
Mm -hmm. Well, how about an even a more basic one? And uh, forgive the primitive question, so to speak. But um, what do you think is going to happen when you die, or you know, when I die, Miguel dies? You know, wh what's going to happen? We just you know, is that the end? Is that the uh, uh, are we going into oblivion, or is there a continuity of consciousness beyond the body? I don't know. Um, what I have observed from seeing beings that have perished is that it appears that consciousness ends and that it was the DNA, very much like these ancient mythologies asserted, the logos of the, but I don't believe there are ideal forms which uh, gave out the logoi spermaticoi throughout the universe, but I digress. I think that it is the DNA which provides the order to the matter that ultimately produces consciousness, which is itself part of the structure of the universe. But the difficulty I have with those uh, conceptions is the temporal difficulty of the distinctions between um, memory and premonition. And in my personal philosophy, I contemplate a great deal uh, how those two things could actually be very similar things in that memory and premonition could be part of a state that uh, consciousness exists in as part of the structure of the universe in which it is integrated into what the consciousness itself as a delusion perceives as time, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think I actually follow you, believe it or not. Um, maybe I'm reading a little bit more into it, but um, it might be that our consciousness could encompass, I mean, premonitions and so forth, knowledge of things that we don't pick up necessarily um, uh, from our senses. Um, there's um, some evidence, quite a bit of evidence, some people think that um, ESP, for example, that there's an interconnectedness of minds between individual vessels, so to speak. And so, you know, you can extrapolate from that and, and postulate that perhaps consciousness is uh, more complex than just, you know, an individual consciousness being associated with a body. I agree but, with uh, that. And I think that there is some kind of interconnectivity that the uh, that becomes part of the structure of the universe yeah so um yeah th thanks that that's uh, kind of makes it a little more clear i think the, the the listeners will probably enjoy that hearing that too so miguel back to you back to me awesome yeah thanks for that it's very cool it should be mentioned too uh yeah the apocalypse of abraham i forgot about that one probably because it's such a, it's not really gnostic at all it's it is very anti-jewish and very anti-gentile at the same time but yeah the gospel of judas yeah we it's anti put... excuse me for interrupting but it's sure, anti-apostate sure. judaism oh okay <laughs> because the christians play the role one of the main themes in my book uh, beware the world to come and rise above the gods who hate us is that jesus assumes the role of satan and Satan performs many useful aspects in Judaism. Judaism couldn't exist without Satan. And one of the um, roles that Satan plays that was scripted for Jesus is to be the tempter. He is to tempt the Jews to engage in the idolatry of worshiping Jesus 
whom they know to be Satan, and they accused him of it in John and many other places. And uh, as you know, the Cainites, the Naasenes, the Ophites openly stated that Jesus was the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And even the Apocryphon of John states that it was Jesus who offered the gnosis of the fruit of the tree of knowledge to Adam and Eve. So um, what the Apocalypse of Abraham is saying, if I have understood it correctly, and as, as, it, as it has been handed down and has passed through many hands, is that uh, Jesus came also to tempt Jews into worshiping him. And those Jews who do will have revealed the fact that they have wicked souls, probably derived from the mixed multitude, and that they should be uh, purged from the tribe and will be purged, uh, will be punished. That's another of Satan's roles in the end times. Well, that's kind of inside out. <laughs> if you read, <laughs> the whole, you thing, read, is, the whole yeah. thing is that uh, Gnosticism is completely inside out. Uh, Yahweh well, becomes the evil figure and Satan well, becomes the good That's true. Figure. That's true. But what I mean is um, whoever this is that's preaching that Jesus came to just trick everybody into, you know, uh, going uh, into an apostate form of Judaism and then, you know, w with peace and love and so forth and the things that mostly, mostly are, at least in the New Testament, um, seems that he was liberating people and uh, he was, you know, let he who is without sin cast the first stone and all that type of thing. That doesn't sound like an evil philosophy to me. But, well, may, uh, I, may I explain uh, my views on all that? I think what you're saying sure. is incredibly important. Uh, Christians will immediately see in that um, classical Satanism that Satan came to liberate humanity from the law. And Jesus uh, came to liberate humanity from the law. He, he pointed out that um, it was ridiculous for people not to help other people on the Sabbath. It was ridiculous for hungry people not to harvest food on the Sabbath and be fed. And these are all um, violations of Yahweh's laws. And Yahweh is shown to be an irrational, hostile force. Yeah, And one of my, I think, uh, unique insights, as far as I know, uh, Miguel knows everything, so he'll probably be able to tell me whether I'm right about I that. am God. There is no God <laughs> but me. <laughs> is I think Gnosticism was absolutely nothing new when it came around the, on the scene in the first century. And some say that like you Gnostics, the Blessed, and other things were written prior to the first oh, century. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the Book of Enoch. Mm-hmm. I think they were always Gnostics. The authors of the Septuagint hated Yahweh. Yahweh was what was known in the ancient world as a cacodemon. And the corresponding cacodemon for the Romans was a god named Vejovus. For the Greeks, it was a Mithraic god named Aramanius. These gods were gods to be feared, and everyone has to have the fear of Yahweh. Because if you don't fear Yahweh, he will do harm to you and do harm to the community. And that is a classical cacodemon. And the authors of the uh, Septuagint made certain that throughout the entire fabricated script, Yahweh was always portrayed as a cacodemon who demanded obedience and sacrifices, lest he uh, fulfill all of the multitude of curses he issued 
upon the Israelites and upon the Jews and make good on them and do to them uh, the same thing that he had cursed the non-Israelites with. So it became a contract between the Israelites and the Kakodemon Yahweh, which they had to fulfill. But once that contract is fulfilled, the plan was always to kill Yahweh and take his place. And that was always asserted to be the plan of Satan, that in the end he would kill God and take his place. And we find that uh, in the very first chapters of Genesis, this idea that Yahweh became frightened when Satan gave mankind knowledge to become his army that would become like gods who could come and slay Yahweh. And this is very similar to the mythology of Prometheus and Zeus. When Prometheus uh, gave man fire and knowledge, Zeus became frightened that man would come and uh, ascend Mount Olympus and slay Zeus and the Olympian gods. So this is a retelling of those uh, Greek myths. And it is retold again in the mythology of the Tower of Babel, when the gods became terrified that human beings were coordinating with one another and all had one language so that they could share their knowledge, their gnosis from generation to generation. And each generation would not have to create knowledge anew and be hamstrung in that way. What the gods did was destroy the tower and then uh, create the generation of confusion in which no one could speak to anyone else and knowledge could not be passed along. So the, um, the Tanakh, the Septuagint, the Old Testament is uh, thoroughly invested in the idea that Yahweh is a malevolent, misanthropic, evil being whose goal is to impose an irrational order on chaos. And that chaos has its own nature, its own dark light. And we see that on the fourth day in Genesis, that there are two types of light. There's the bright light of day, which is Yahweh's light. And then there is the luminescence of the moon and the stars, which is the light of the serpent of darkness. The uh, evil Leviathan has luminescent skin, which was viewed as the stars. And he supposedly circled the earth every day as the Ouroboros. And we see this same mythology portrayed in the Gnostic book of the great invisible light, chapter three, verses one to six, and chapter seven, verse one, where it talks about the serpent of darkness and the serpent of light. And in Kabbalah, this takes the form of the new moon gradually absorbing the light of the sun to become the full moon. The new moon becomes the full moon. And that is what they view as the process of the six days of creation, of fulfilling the Torah, which is Yahweh's effort to impose order on chaos to the point where chaos absorbs all of Yahweh's energy and all of Yahweh's light and then the darkness shines. And that is why they have the eighth candle on the menorah, because the eighth candle represents the ultimate triumph of chaos over order, of Satan over Yahweh. On the eighth day, uh, the light will shine, and that is why the eighth candle lights the other candles in preparation for that. 
And they view that as the liberation of humanity from the irrational order that the cacodemon Yahweh seeks to impose on the universe. Are you and saying this, that modern-day Jews actually believe this, or, or, or do you think modern-day Jews are apostate and there's, you know, almost nobody left that believes this? Because that's pretty, that's way more uh, complicated, um, you know, a cosmology than I thought modern, you know, modern Jews believed in. This is um, beliefs which were codified in Lurian Kabbalah. Uh, in the Tanya of Schnorr Salman, in Shabbatayan Kabbalah, and in Frankist Kabbalah. But I think that these were the initial beliefs of the authors of the Septuagint, who had a school of Judaism which deviated from the Sadducees in the temple in Jerusalem, who were Yahwehists. And I think that uh, these Alexandrian Jews, who were uh, highly sophisticated, extremely intelligent people, were exposed to the Greek mystery schools. And they saw in the Greek mystery schools the idea of this dualism of blending the light with the darkness to create an androgyne in the form of two holy serpents which also takes the form of the two trees in the Garden of Eden. Jesus on the cross is Satan on uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is what that symbolizes. Jesus is the serpent and the tree is the cross. And the imagery was presented uh, long before Christ in the form of the brazen serpent, Nehushtan, that Moses was commanded to put upon the Asherah pole and hang on a cross before the Israelites so that the poison of the snake bite ripened and became the cure. The oral tradition of Judaism teaches that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a fig tree and a grapevine. The grapevine is the serpent, the fig tree is the cross, is, uh, uh. is the tree itself. And you'll find uh, the grapevine and the uh, fig tree paired throughout the Old Testament in many significant passages, especially in Zechariah chapter 3, where Jesus is put on trial and uh, successfully defends himself from the accuser, and then everyone is free to sit under the grapevine and the fig tree, which is the tree of knowledge and good and evil. That tree is called the tree of death in the Zohar. And in Kabbalah, the tree of life and the tree of death are united. There is the Sephirotic tree, which is the tree of life, and the Kelipotic tree, which is the tree of death. Presently, the tree of life forms the crown of the tree and uh, um, rises above the earth of chaos, which is the dung heap, in the light of day. But in the end, the two trees exchange places, and the tree of death is presently the roots of the tree. And you'll see in uh, frequently in Kabbalistic imagery and in the uh, imagery of Jacob Burma, uh, these two trees united at the trunk, and the tree of knowledge is the roots, and the tree of life is the crown of the tree. But after this process, which mirrors what the Greeks believe, 
that chaos through entropy gradually absorbs the order of daylight to become a blending of opposites which are balanced and free and no longer have to obey law and order. The two trees change places and the calipotic tree emerges into the moonlight, into the shining darkness. And at that point, um, the other side will have been eliminated because the other side has a very special soul. It is the soul of Yehida, which is the highest form of soul. And in Kabbalah, Jesus Christ is the Messiah, son of Joseph. That Messiah has the soul of the Messiah and is the evil serpent. The holy serpent is the vessel, the body, which is Messiah, son of David. That is why Jesus has to die. Because when Jesus dies, he gives up his chaotic soul of Yehida, and that soul enters the vessel of the body of uh, Messiah, son of David, to complete the two serpents as one serpent. Because the two trees are one, and the two serpents are one, and the two messiahs are one. But Jesus has to die to free up that soul, which is then taken over by Messiah, son of David. At present, Messiah, son of David, and uh, the Jews are viewed as being deficient of that highest soul of Yehida. This is made clear in Chaim Vital's book, Gate of Reincarnations, which um, presents uh, the view of reincarnation that Isaac Luria had. And Luria said that Jesus is the reincarnation of Cain and Esau. Cain is said to be the child of Satan, the serpent in the Garden of Eden, and Eve, and therefore has a dual nature, both of the goodness of Eve, who came from Adam, is the female aspect of Adam, but also of Satan. Now, going back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil being a grapevine, at the time of Adam and Eve, the fruit of the tree of knowledge, in other words, the gnosis, the knowledge of light and darkness, was unripe, and it produced wine, which is toxic. It is poisonous. Wine is intoxicating. It is toxic. Uh, it causes the intellect to become irrational. An irrational intellect is a chaotic intellect. So the Eucharist, which is the wine, which is, of course, the blood of Christ, is the venom of the serpent. Well, it is still unripe. <laughs> amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. It was then, apple cider, huh? Not, not the apple. <laughs> yeah, this is some heavy metal thunder as far as I'm concerned. And I love the... I mean, I love the transgressive writings of Jacob Frank and Isaac Luria and Shabbatai Zevi. Uh, I relate a lot to Shabbatai Zevi. However, I would never hang out with Jacob Frank in real life. Maybe Isaac Luria because he was more chill and so forth. But I think, um, well, first I want to say, and it's a bit of a correction, and forgive me for being pedantic, but um, the in the Apocryphon of John, the serpent is actually bad. It's the eagle on top that's good. And it drives me crazy, Christopher, because this goes against all other Gnostic texts, origins of the world, hypostasis of the archons, the Nascenes, the Ophites, the Manichaeans, 
for some reason, the secret book of John just completely diverges on that one and makes the snake the demiurge. But but I didn't uh, say the snake. I didn't say that the Apocryphon of John uh, said oh, I'm that, sorry. that Jesus was the snake. And I was careful about that because uh-huh, you're entirely okay, correct. Okay, it says that the serpent is evil and that the serpent uh, misled uh, mankind to become lustful. It still drives me crazy because I'm like, why did the author do that? Of all the Gnostic authors. <laughs> but it, but it, the Apocryphon of John, the secret book of John, specifically does state that Jesus is the one, Jesus himself says within the text of the book, that he is the one who gave the fruit of Gnosis, of the tree mm, of knowledge and good and evil, to uh, Adam and Eve. As and an then evil, yeah. he is asked about that, and they ask him and say, but wasn't that the serpent? And Jesus then explains that the serpent was the one who um, tempted them to become lustful. And he seems to make a distinction between providing gnosis and tempting to the sin of lust. No, that makes perfect sense. And yeah, and you make a good case about this dislike for Yahweh, because even as scholars like James McGrath have pointed out, the Gnostics were part of this underground current, the more cult of Asherah, the more holistic nature uh, movements, and they were suppressed by the cult of Yahweh, but they continued. And even in the Babylonian exile, if some have said Yahweh himself might have been suppressed and replaced in some ways by Marduk, the original god of order and civilization and rules and war, while and uh and that god continued and of course the gnostics were this uh well you they might have picked up on time at the serpent the chaos and all that and these movements sort of have been at each other throughout history and manifesting as the gnostics orthodox christians uh jews and their disputes and all that other stuff so i think uh you probably would be right and how does paul play into all of this um, Paul's a very interesting figure. Uh, he first arrives most prominently in the original Canaan that the Mar- Marcion produced, with also the Gospel of Marcion, which uh, is uh, probably the precursor to the Gospel of Luke. Right, agreed. And um, Irenaeus said that all of these heresies derived from Simon Magus who was a Samaritan. And I go into this book, uh, I go into this deeply in my book, Satanic Secrets of Jesus Christ, um, Volume 2, Jesus is Satan. I point out the, the, um, the Samaritans had a concept of the Messiah uh, probably before the Jews did. And the Samaritans were viewed as a mixed race, but primarily the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. They, those two are the sons of Joseph. That's significant because the Samaritans had this idea that a Messiah would arrive that they called Taheb. And I believe that that Messiah is um, the archetype of the Messiah, son of Joseph, who Paul largely fabricated in the Pauline epistles, if there actually was a Paul. 
And these were gathered together, the real ones were gathered together by Marcion, and then later um, pseudo ones appeared that became part of the canon. And I think that Paul's ambition was to trick the Romans into worshiping Satan in the place of their own gods to strip them of their supernatural protection. And I think that prior to Paul, there were the Gnostics. And I think Paul picked up on a great deal of Gnosticism and set it up as a trap that became the trap of eventually the trap of Orthodox Christianity. But the, the Gentiles and the Romans found ways of defending themselves and um, slowly morphed many of the original beliefs, which uh, the church fathers who gained political power with the Romans called heresies, which were uh, Marcion's belief and the belief of the Gnostics that Yahweh was a cacodemon, was a malevolent, uh, misanthropic, and failed creator god. So I think that was Paul's role. Paul's role was to dupe the Romans into first believing that they were guilty for original sin, which the Romans never believed prior to Paul, and then to tell them that their only option to obtain uh, redemption from that sin and immortality was to adopt this um, Jewish religion, which made the king of the Jews emperor of the universe and ultimately um, would lead to the construction of an empire that would consume itself. And when it consumed itself, the Jews would take the place of the Gentiles, as was set forth in the Apocalypse of Abraham. And this is more or less the concept of the Ouroboros you talk about in your book, the serpent that consumes itself until there's nothing left. Yes, very much so. Pretty nihilistic, and and a lot of this has to do with. Uh, but it's also on a personal level because the the um, you disagree, but I think that uh, in many Gnostic texts and in um, the accusations which were levied against the Gnostics, they would uh, engage in abortions, they would consume seminal fluid and menstrual waste as possessing the divine essence. And they strongly uh, discourage procreation because they believe that it would trap the spirit of the one in the wickedness of the material world, which Yahweh Yathoboth had created. And that lingered with the Cathars, the Bogomils, the Yukites, the Meslians. And uh, even today, we have the Mandaeans in Iraq who are Gnostics. But uh, obviously, they procreate. As yeah, you say, yeah. it's a necessity. <laughs> yeah, especially where they've been. They're always under fire, those poor souls. Well, uh, we are at the end. Where can people find out more about your work, Christopher? Um, the best website to get to my stuff is cjbbooks.com. That's my initials, Christopher John Bjorkness, cjbbooks, all one word, dot com. Awesome. And of course, we will have this on the show notes. And yes, his book, Beware the World to Come, is just a, a treasure chest of historical 
uh, theological esotericism from, I mean, we didn't even talk about Islam. We barely, we barely got to all your rich uh, research on Islam and other traditions, but uh, perhaps for another time. But uh, first of all, Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company. Oh, it's, it was a terrifying, I mean, wonderful experience. <laughs> <laughs> I have the grand unified theory of the apocalypse. Hey, now. it's up to us to have a happy ending. Yep, Nothing I heard changed. it, and I can't unhear it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, a lot of great thinking there, Christopher. Um, really, uh, I, I did appreciate and enjoy uh, hearing hearing you uh, speak about about uh, what, you're, um, what you're about. Thank you so very much. Thank you both for uh, sharing this time with me. And um, hopefully we can speak again. Uh, yeah, let's do it. But uh, this is the end. Well, thank you very much, Christopher, and good luck with all your, your work. And thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. I won't say gnosis, but I'll say gnosis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not at all opposed to gnosis. I think, that, I think there's a lot of truth in the idea that the poison can become the cure. Yeah, yeah. I know my, yeah poison is that's my uncle is a santo diamond shaman he goes down to the amazons once a year he gets snake poison and he doesn't get sick the other 364 days out of the year completely healthy so i know what you're saying but anyway thank you very much christopher and we shall talk take care bye-bye gentlemen and there you have it my beloved true seekers the first part of a captivating interview with Christopher. In our second part, Christopher will go deeper on the myth of Samael and Lilith, as well as other occult mythos, and further on the idea of androgyny. He'll explain what the so-called elite are doing today, and how they're doing it. This will include Klaus Schwab and his shenanigans. Christopher, of course, will provide solutions to turning back all this oppression. And we discuss various aspects of Marx and Hitler and other historical bomb throwers. And much more. So please become a member for the full world to come. It's only $6.99 for AB Prime or $4.99 for Red Circle or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. For AB Prime members and higher level Patreons, you'll get access to my private Facebook group and Discord. If you find value in this content, please support this Red Pill Cafeteria. Your help can be in the form of some shekel donations to PayPal or the USA Mail. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to leave a tip via Stripe now. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wish list. Don't forget my voiceover availability. I'll bring you stellar voiceover with down-to-earth professionalism, no matter what project or scope you need. I'm also on Rockfin or Odyssey if crypto is your bag, although you can subscribe on Rockfin with just cash. If you need help with all these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.